Please stand for the reading of God's word. Psalm 104, 1 through 24. Praise the Lord, my soul. Lord, my God, you are very great. You are clothed with splendor and majesty. The Lord wraps himself in light as with a garment. He stretches out the heavens like a tent and lays the beams of his upper chambers on their waters. He makes the clouds his chariot and rides on the wings of the wind. He makes winds his messengers, flames of his fire, his servants. He sets the earth on its foundations. It can never be moved. You covered it with the watery depths as with a garment. The waters stood above the mountains. But at your rebuke, the waters fled. At the sound of your thunder, they took to flight. They flowed over the mountains. They went down into the valleys to the place you assigned for them. You set a boundary they cannot cross. Never again will they cover the earth. He makes springs pour water into the ravines. It flows between the mountains. They give water to all the beasts of the field. The wild donkeys quench their thirst. The birds of the sky nest by the waters. They sing among the branches. He waters the mountains from his upper chambers. The land is satisfied by the fruit of his work. He makes grass grow for the cattle and plants for people to cultivate, bringing forth food from the earth, wine that gladdens human hearts, oil to make their faces shine, and bread that sustains their hearts. The trees of the Lord are well watered, the cedars of Lebanon that he planted. There the birds make their nests, the stork has its home in the junipers, The high mountains belong to the wild goats. The crags are a refuge for the hyricks. He made the moon to mark the seasons, and the sun knows when to go down. You bring darkness, it becomes night, and all the beasts of the forest prowl. The lions roar for their prey and seek their food from God. The sun rises and they steal away. They return and lie down in their dens. Then people go out of their work to their labor until the evening. How many are your works, Lord? In wisdom you make them all. The earth is full of your creatures. I think that's good. That's Sean's. Okay, yeah, yeah. Okay. Good morning. I am going to, for the first time ever, set a timer because I don't know how long I'm going to go today. I'll keep it where I'm supposed to be. Um, good morning again. Uh, welcome to Grace Fellowship Church. I'm Dave, and uh, we have been in this series all fall that we're calling Embodied. What does it mean to live as embodied beings in these physical, tangible bo- bodies? Um, what is the theology of the body, and how does that inform how we think about many things in this world? And today, as I've said before, today we're going to talk about climate change. And you might be wondering, what on earth does that have to do with my body? Um, But it has to do with the fact that we've been put in this physical, tangible place, this earth that God has created and put us in. And so I want to talk about that. How do we think about that? How how are we supposed to interact with this place as followers of Jesus? What does this have to do with our faith? And um, I'm diving into deep waters over the next couple weeks with highly politicized issues. And uh, this is uh, certainly the case here. And I was thinking about how how politics shift and, and kind of things shift over time. Uh, I grew up in the 80s uh, in the evangelical church around here. 
In the 80s, uh, the only people that were environmentalists were sort of the very left-leaning people who were coming from usually an atheistic standpoint. And we called them tree huggers and things like that. That's what I grew up thinking. And the evangelical church kind of saw that, and it was kind of like guilt by association. I don't want to have anything to do with those people. So I guess I'm sort of anti-environment because they're pro-environment. So I guess I'm, as a Christian, I'm supposed to be anti-environment. Um, that's sort of how I grew up in the, the culture that I grew up in. But of course, sustainability in the last 20 years has become a very popular thing. It's become all the rage. And now it's kind of hip and trendy to be, you know, environmentally friendly. And Christians are uh, much more hopping onto that bandwagon. And um, all that to say, these things shift and change over the years. They certainly have in my lifetime. And what I want to do today as much as I can is I would like to depoliticize this issue, if ever that were possible. But I want you to try to, we, we all bring a political lens, set of glasses to this conversation that usually has to do with the party we're affiliated with or just these gut sort of takes that are more politically informed than anything. And my goal today, as much as I can, would be for all of us for the next 40 minutes to just take off those lenses, okay? Without judgment, Let's take off those lenses and let's see if, if we can see how would scripture, what would be the lens that scripture would give us to some of these issues today as much as we can. That's my goal today, okay? Spoiler alert, this will probably be the most disappointing sermon in the series for most of you in this room for several reasons. Mainly, uh, it's a little bit of a bait and switch. I'm not really going to talk about climate change very much today. <laughs> And what I mean by that is I'm, I'm actually not equipped in 35 minutes to talk through all the science and the current issues and all the values and tension that are about this world that we're living in, all that whole conversation. I'm not really equipped. I'm not an expert in it. And I certainly couldn't do it in 35 minutes. Um, so I won't be telling you at the end of this, I, I, you're going to be bummed that I, I, I'm not going to be telling you what to do. I'm not going to tell you if you should go electric or you should go gas or if you should go vegan or should eat meat or, you know, I don't know if we should be drilling more or less, those sorts of things, all the important things to think through. Um, I'm not going to say much about any of that. <laughs> um, so all that say, you'll be disappointed because there'll be a lot of issues unaddressed, a lot of questions that I will not have answered, obviously, at the end of this. Um, what I am equipped to do, I think, in about 35 minutes, is as much as I can, I want to give us a basic biblical framework for thinking about these things. Again, I want to take off the politicized lenses as much as possible and give us a basic biblical framework. I want to answer basic questions about the story of Scripture, like what is this earth? What, from a biblical standpoint, how should we think of it? What kind of a thing is it? And then what is our role within it, biblically, okay? So that's really, I just want to answer those two questions. What is, what is this place? How should we think about it as Christians? And then maybe most importantly, what is our role within it? What is God, how has God designed us to live within it? And I'll just say, you guys are going to be thoroughly disappointed. I'm going to really enjoy this sermon. Um, I get to talk about one of my favorite things, which is God's creation, and that's the word I'll use. I won't talk about nature. I won't talk about the environment. I will talk about God's creation. And if any of you know me, you know that is one of my great delights in this world. Um, before the service, Scott said, Dave, you secretly have a desire to be Christopher Robin. And I said, that's not a secret desire at all. I'd love to be Christopher Robin. I love God's creatures. Um, so I will thoroughly enjoy this. You'll thoroughly be dis disappointed. And I paid. So it, 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 I, I went out in all ways today. 
No, so let's, let's um, I am very excited to talk about this. Um, so here's what I'm gonna do. Let's, let's start, let's just talk about, from a biblical standpoint, where are we? What is this place? How should we think about what I'll call the non-human parts of creation, okay? So go back to Genesis 1 uh, in your Bibles. It's not too hard to find. It actually is on page one in my Bible. I, I didn't expect that. I thought it'd be like page 15, but it is page one. So I'm going to give you a lot of information today, and we're going to move quickly, but a lot of this will be review for you, but I think it'll be a fun overview, okay? So what is this place? How should we think about this earth that we have been set upon? The story begins in Genesis 1.1. I'll put things on the screen if you don't have a Bible with this phrase, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And the heavens and the earth are a way of saying everything, <laughs> everything. And so the first thing we want to say about creation, the non-human creation, this earth, is really important. And it's this, it is not God, right? That's kind of the most basic thing of all. In the beginning, God created something that wasn't him. <laughs> so there are two categories for all of reality. There is God, and then there is everything else. And so this creation, this earth, is not God. It is not to be worshipped by us. And in fact, things go wrong when we worship this creation instead of the creator. Romans 1, the fundamental problem of humanity was we worshipped created things rather than the creator. So this earth, it is not eternal. It is not God. What is it? It is God's good creation. And that's what we hear when we read the rest of this story. Um, and I just love Genesis 1. It's, it's, it's sad that we get bogged down in debates about old earth, new earth, and evolution versus creationism, really important conversations. But like we lose the grandeur of Genesis 1, and it's such a beautiful story. Verse 2, now the earth was formless and empty, darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. I love that image of the Spirit brooding, formless and void. It has no form, it has no inhabitants. And what you get in the rest of Genesis 1 is God bringing form and then filling out that form with inhabitants. And God is portrayed as the consummate artist in this passage. Um, I've got a little image of how the days break down, but the whole story is full of color and shape and matter and diversity. There's lots of teeming going on, creeping and crawling, all full of life. It's this beautiful, wild, raucous creation as far as I'm concerned. But God really is, is um, painted as a consummate artist, like a painter. In days one, two, and three, you do what a painter would, he does what a painter would do. He paints the background canvas, light and darkness, right? Then he separates uh, sky and sea, and then sea and land. You're doing the background canvas, and then in days four through six, you put your foreground, your characters that belong in each of those canvases, sun, moon, and stars in day four, right? The birds uh, and the fish, and then the, the land animals. But it's this beautiful, just wonderful picture of this created place as God's created masterpiece, yes? Right? It is his, it is not God, it is, it is his created, creative masterpiece. And what you see throughout the story is it is an object of God's own delight, right? This constant refrain, and God saw that it was good. Like an artist who paints something and steps back and goes, what I just made is beautiful. It is good. That is how God thinks about his creation. I think that's really interesting. 
it, it, it's not like God's imbuing goodness and like kind of, I'm gonna identify this as good. He's actually stepping back and looking at it and objectively acknowledging this is good. This has intrinsic goodness. I, can rec- I see it and I recognize it. Of course it does, because who made it? The great God of all. So it is his creative masterpiece. It is a source of his delight. Not only that, it is an object of his ongoing care and concern. And didn't you just love that psalm that Cassie read for us? Psalm 104? No? Yes. Right? Isn't that beautiful? Uh, Christians do not have the enlightenment deistic view of a God who was the unmoved mover, who in the beginning set this whole thing up and just lets it run like a clock and then steps back and just watches it all happen. Okay, the Christian God is constantly active in his creation, sustaining it, caring for it, moment by moment, not just an active creation, but ongoing care, right? Psalm 104, he makes, not he made in the beginning, but he makes springs pour water into the ravines. It flows between the mountains. They give water to all the beasts of the field. The wild donkeys quench their thirst. He makes grass grow for the cattle and plants for people to cultivate, bringing forth fruit from the earth, wine that gladdens human hearts, oil to make their faces shine, and bread that sustains their hearts. A God who cares for all of his creatures, lovingly, ongoing, in ongoing ways, sustaining life and everything that exists in this world. This is the kind of God in whom we live and move and have our being. Look at other Psalms, and the, and the Psalms say, not only is this God's created order, but God's creation testifies about who God is. And many of us have experienced this in our lives. Psalm 19, maybe most famously, the heavens, the skies, there I think he's talking about, declare the glory of God, okay? The skies proclaim the work of his hands. Day after day, they pour forth speech. Night after night, they reveal knowledge. Then he says this, they have no speech. What? They use no words. No sound is heard from them. Right? He just said the skies, God's creation, speaks about God's glory, but they have no words. How can you speak without words? They declare God's glory simply by being what they are right? Simply by being a reflection of the creator who made them. Paul says this in Romans 1, again, famously, since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, things we cannot see, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made so that people are without excuse. Paul says, you can look at creation, we all know this, And you can learn things about the creator, specifically about his power and his divinity. And I was thinking this week, what have I learned about the creator from his creation? And I could add a lot more than those two words. Let me give you a couple of them. Um, Here's a place I've been before. Many of you have been before. Uh, I have learned about the majesty of God through his creation. I've learned about the power of God through his creation. I've been scared a lot in my life, and the top 20 most scared moments of my life have all been in the ocean. I can promise you that. 
right in front of a wave, not quite that big, but caught inside a big set. Ah, oh, that's the most terrifying thing. I've learned about the power of God from his creation. I've learned about the beauty of God, uh, the creativity, the diversity of God from his creation. I will never forget, we went to um, Maui when I, I was like 12. And I will never forget the first time I put a snorkel on and got inside that. I thought someone had turned on like the neon lights. Like I could not believe these were natural colors that I was, I thought there was electricity somewhere happening here. This is fake. How is this possible? Um, one of the things I've learned most is God's attention to detail. And when I went to uh, college, that's when my love of God's creation really came alive. And I spent uh, long periods of time just staring at plants. I was kind of weird when I was in college. <laughs> and I was blown away by what I learned about God through his creation at that time. Uh, I've learned about, again, God's, gosh, creativity and bizarreness. That's, you know, those are glowworms. I've seen glowworms. I've been in caves in New Zealand and seen glowworms. Amazing. Uh, and last thing, uh, I have learned about God's sense of humor. <laughs> In this picture gets funnier the longer you look at it. I promise you. Who makes that? How much personality is right there in that face? I love that photo. Scripture says creation is not an end in and of itself. Creation is a window for the believer into the creator. Right, like we, we look at, and that's, what, that's really been the great delight for me of creation. It's, it's not creation as an end of itself. It's I see this beauty and I see this detail and this creativity and it's like a window through which the, crea the unseen creator speaks of his goodness and his mercy and his power to us. And so the Christian can experience, we'll call it nature, in a way that a non-Christian cannot. And I was thinking this week, if, if no one had ever heard of Rembrandt, for instance, and all of a sudden there were some Rembrandts up here on the wall, and 10 people come by and they look at these Rembrandts and think, this, this is pretty good stuff. But one person actually still knows who Rembrandt is, knows the master. And they come and they go, oh my gosh, you guys, you have no idea. This is a Rembrandt. Like they, they have the ability to appreciate those works in a whole different way because they know the artist. And scripture says that is what we as believers have with nature. We know the artist. And so we can enjoy it in a way that the atheist cannot. One final thing I'll say about what is this place is, um, if this hasn't become clear yet, oh, it's right there. Um, it belongs to God, not us. Theologically, biblically, this place is God's, not ours, right? The earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and all who live in it. It is his, and it exists for his glory. Like all things, the ultimate purpose of all things, and certainly the creator is God's own glory, not ours. Okay, and that, it's really interesting. Psalm 104, what we had read, I don't know if you noticed this, but several times the psalmist mentions these wild animals like the wild donkey and the, what was it, like the hyrax or something. Later on, it talks about the lion. And I think purposely mentions animals that exist outside of human civilization at that time. Okay, these are mysteries. They, and they, they serve no human purpose. This isn't cattle that people are eating. These are wild animals that are out 
in the deserts, in, in places where human bring, beings don't really interact with them. And the psalmist saying, God cares for those creatures too that human beings don't even interact with. They have no purpose for human beings. And I've thought that regularly in my life. I'll go, when we go up to the Sierras, I'll go on a hike. And maybe I'll go off trail a little bit and I'll see like a columbine flower, this beautiful flower, elegant, beautiful. And I'll realize I will be the only human being who ever sees this flower, right? No other human being will see this flower. Or we, it, science is showing us like what's the, the creatures of the deep now, these, right, these creatures that exist deep down in the ocean, some of which are very beautiful and exotic, that no human being has seen for millennia. What on earth are they doing here? Well, they're not for us, right? Because this place isn't ours. Ultimately, it's God's. And these creatures exist for his glory and for his pleasure and to reflect who he is. All right? So I think there's so much more I could say, but just the basic creation theology, what is this place? It is not God. It is not to be worshipped. Rather, it is God's good creation, an object of his constant care and delight. It reflects him, and it exists for his glory. All right. You with me? Okay. So let's move on to the second question, which is, okay, so that's what this place is. What is our role? In this place? What is the human role in God's creation from a biblical standpoint? And I'm going to give you three words. I think our role is we have a role as members, as rulers, and as stewards. Okay? So let's see how this gets fleshed out in the creation account. And we'll look at some other stuff beyond creation post fall as well. But um, here's what really struck me this week. I always think about our role as rulers, right? Like Genesis 1 28, go rule, and we'll talk about that. But before we're rulers, I was realizing this week, we are first and foremost members of this creation, <laughs> okay? And I was thinking of all the details that are talked about that, that just put us as members of this creation. Genesis 2, think about um, our connection with the, with, the, with the soil, the earth. Then the Lord God formed a man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and the man became a living being. We've talked a lot about that, that we are, there's this inherent connection with the ground and with us. We are formed out of the dust. The Adama is dust, the Adam, the man is formed out of that. So there's a connection between us and the earth. Now here's something I had never seen in 47 years of reading the Bible. How are the animals formed? We're formed from the dust. Anybody know how the animals are formed? Well, in Genesis 1, speech. In Genesis 2, now the Lord God had formed out of the ground all the wild animals and all the birds in the sky. He made the animals the exact same way he made us. I never knew that after 47 years of my life. Okay? We come from the ground just like the other animals come from the ground. Um, Genesis 1, we don't even get our own day of creation. <laughs> right? I mean, that's kind of interesting. We don't even get our own day. Day five, you get, you get the, uh, the birds and the fish. And day six, you get the land animals. And we're lumped in with the land animals. That's what we are. We're land animals. Um, we have this beautiful blessing. God blessed them, that's referring to humans, and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number, fill the earth. We think that is the human blessing. No, it's not. This is Genesis 1.22. God blessed them, the birds and the fish, and said, be fruitful and increase in number and fill the water and the seas and let the birds increase on the earth. And if that is enough, we are given 
the same food for our sustenance. Then God said to the humans, I give you every seed-bearing plant on the face of the whole earth, and every tree that is fruit with the seed in it, they will be yours for food. And to all the beasts of the earth, and all the birds in the sky, and the, all the creatures that move along the ground, everything that has a breath of life in it, that's the ruach, right, of God, I give every green plant for food. All that to say, before we're anything else, we are members of creation. And in the creator versus creation division, we fit squarely on the side of creation, okay? We are not gods striding upon this earth. We are intricately bound up with God's entire created order. We are members. There's a kinship between us and the rest of, cre of creation. Again, take your political lenses off, okay? Don't get angry about what I'm saying right now with any sort of implications. This is scripture's basic idea about human beings. And I was thinking this week, it's I like technology, I, 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 like, I like living in the 21st century and not in the first century, um, but there's been something lost. We, we have really, in so many ways, modern life, we've lost our sense of connection with the rest of creation. I was thinking, there are, there are days I go by, maybe weeks, where my bare feet never walk upon the earth. Like, that's an interesting thing. Um, I go into a grocery store and I buy ground beef. <laughs> And I have, there's nothing about the color or shape of this ground beef that reminds me of the cow <laughs> that it came from, right? I turn on my water uh, and my, my, my sink. I have no idea where this wonderful water has come from. I go to the bathroom. I have no idea where that goes. I, you know, there's, I've, we've, we've lost a sense of connection with what it means to be embodied creatures living on an earth. And I'm, again, I love technology, but that, there's something lost about that. Okay, all that to say, we are first and foremost, or at least we are first, members of creation. But secondly, and this is the passages that we usually think of, we are also rulers of creation. This is the role God has given us, to be rulers over his creation. Genesis 1:27, definitive verse in the Bible. So God, this is what distinguishes us, obviously. Uh, we don't get another day, but we get something much more important than another day. God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. This obviously is what distinguishes us. There is something godlike in us, and we, I'm not going to go into all the details of what that might look like, but it certainly means that human beings have a dignity and a worth and a value that far exceeds anything else in the created order. We need to remember that in our, in our current moment. Okay, um, a human being is so much more valuable than a tree, or a rare species of salamander, you know, or even a silverback gorilla, which is my wife's favorite animal. Um, I don't know if you remember a couple years ago. Remember that kid fell into the zoo with a silverback, and they killed the silverback, and there was sort of an outrage. And I just want to remind people, like that kid's worth a lot more than that silverback. They're inherently, what what he is within himself is so much more valuable, as wonderful as a silverback gorilla is. Um, this is what distinguishes us. So we're, we are in, made in the image of God, and then we are given a task in God's creation. Genesis 1.28. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number, fill the earth. That's the same as all the other animals. And then something distinct about us is this. And subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. So we're made in God's image, and we're given a role to subdue and to rule. We subdue the earth 
and we rule over the creatures of the earth, okay? So I wanna tease out these, these two tasks because this is where things kinda get, where we start to form our biblical theology on this stuff. Uh, subdue, it's a pretty strong word. Um, it's not a gentle word um, you, most of the time. And the idea, as far as I can tell, seems to be that you know, God creates Eden and it's this beautiful place, but the idea is that we're supposed to spread out, right, and fill the earth and bring Eden to the rest of the world. And it seems to me that God's created creation is being portrayed as this thing that's fairly wild. It's beautiful, it's you know, lovely and good, but it's wild, it's untamed, it's uncultivated. And God is saying to his image bearers, I want you to go out, I want you to tame it, I want you to cultivate, I want you to subdue it, bring it under uh, human order, um, there's, some, there's a role that you have to play for the sake of yourselves and for this creation. You are, you are to subdue the earth. And if we go to Genesis 2, I think we get a little bit of sense of what that means. This is Genesis 2.15. The Lord God took the man, right, Adam, and put him in the Garden of Eden to, and here's our two words, to work it and to take care of it. Or you might have to work and keep it. And so I think those words fill out a little bit about what it means to subdue the earth. Picture a person in a garden. It's a beautiful garden, but it desperately needs a gardener. You need to work it. You need to protect it. You need to cultivate it. You need to till it. You need to organize it. It's interesting, those two words, work and take care of, are two words that are used of the priests in the temple in, in Israel. The priests were to work and keep the temple, to minister to serve in the temple. And God is placing his two creatures in his temple garden and essentially saying, you guys are the priests, okay? So what I think this is saying is uh, life in the garden wasn't quite as simple as maybe we think it was. Like, it wasn't like, you didn't just lay down and like pomegranates just sort of dropped and then like peeled themselves in the air and like landed into your mouth, you know? And as the animals sort of fanned you like that, we kind of picture this life of leisure and, um, but even before the fall, there was work. We were made for good work. Uh, a garden needs a gardener. Anyone who has a garden knows that. Even pre-fall, um, they were to cultivate it, to, to bring out its potential and to care for it. There's a really interesting verse in Genesis 2 that I've always thought, what on earth is this verse doing here? And it's verse, 212, uh, it's verse 12. It's, the author says of, of Eden, the gold of that land is good. Aromatic resin and onyx are also there. I'm thinking, who the heck cares? <laughs> right? Like, why are you telling me about what's in the soil of Eden? And I think the, 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 the author is saying, I want, to, I want you to know that God has put resources in Eden soil that can be used for human flourishing. He's put materials into Eden that don't serve another purpose other than for human society and cultivation. These are, these are metals and materials that you use to build things, to create beautiful things, right? To create tools and objects and ultimately cities out of. And so I think even though we start in a garden, God's, his purpose for Adam and Eve was never, you're going to just stay in this, per, you know, it was, there was going to be sinless, but he wanted a human society to come out of this. He, he built within the, the, the created world 
all the materials that were there for the flourishing of human society, to take the raw materials of God's good earth and use them to bring about goodness, justice, beauty, um, architecture, art, all agriculture, so that a, a human society could be built. God said, take my good earth and build a world out of it as, as my image bearers. It was not a static place. There was going to be movement towards human society. No, no sin, of course, but a human world. So we don't, it's not a leave no trace kind of picture. It's no, I, I have something for you to, to make of this, but it's beautiful. It'll be good for you. It'll be good for everything. Are you still with me? Oh, I got to check my time here. How am I doing? Oh, I lost my clock. Okay, got it. I'm back. I'm back. If you have to leave for brunch, just go ahead and leave at any point. I'm still, I'm still under 30 minutes. So that is the subdue. I have so many things I want to say to you today, and I can't. Like, I'm realizing the next couple of weeks, I'm like, how the heck do you cram, you know, the topic of abortion into 35 minutes or creation care into 35 minutes? So bear with me. Um, that is the subdue. You, you get the picture? I think that God intended. This is pre-fall stuff. And then I just want to go to this other word, right? Let's go back to, do I have it here? Yeah, rule, uh, subdue the earth and rule over the animals. We are God's royal representatives, right? Given authority over the other creatures. We are God's rulers. We are in charge. We are have to have dominion over the creatures. Uh, in my family, we are still trying to have dominion over a one-year-old multipoo. We're working on ruling over this animal and not being ruled by this animal. You see Adam exert his role as ruler in Genesis 2 when God has him name the animals, right? This is, think about the empowerment that God is giving Adam as his representative ruler. God brought the animals to the man to see what he would name them. And whatever the man called each living creature, that was its name, right? God could have named all the animals. Adam, I'm going to pray these animals by you. What, what do you want to name them? Horse? Great. It's a horse, right? And Adam is getting to know the animal. And I think the idea would have been, in Hebrew, a name means something. He's getting to know the animals. What, what is the right identity for this creature? How can I name this? It's an act of authority, but it's also an act of knowledge and, and understanding of each and every animal. And so we are called to rule over the animals. All right. So this is, that's the creation account. Now let me just pause, since you said you were still with me two minutes ago. I take it you're still with me now. We are God's image bearers called to subdue and rule over his creation. My question is, what kind of a rule do you think God wants to, us to exhibit over his creation? Based on what you know of God and his character and his rule, what kind of a rule do you think he envisions human beings having over the rest of creation? I'm not going to answer it for you. I'm going to let just you think about that. When you think about the leadership of Jesus, when you think about what leadership in the Bible looks like from cover to cover or supposed to look like, what would be, again, if we can take our political lenses off and all the current complications, there's no easy answers, but if we can just biblically, what kind of a rule do we think God would want us to exhibit? Well, maybe I will answer it. <laughs> I think it's clear 
that it would not be a rule of domination and exploitation and taking advantage of the rest of God's creatures and creation. Um, nor is it a paradigm of leave no trace. That, that's not the story we get, right? Of no human impact. It's neither of those. I would suggest it's a paradigm of faithful stewardship. And I think stewardship is a good, it's a good word, right? We are to, this is God's. We are stewards here. Like, like, a, like a, um, a servant over a household. And we are, we've been given rule over the household while the, while the owner is gone. How do we care for the other servants and the, other, the house and all of that? We are to use it. Um, we are to cultivate it. Uh, we are to bring it under control. Uh, we are to take care of it. We're to protect it. Uh, we're to benefit from it. All of those things would fit within a faithful stewardship. But I think what I came away with this week is thinking about what creation is and who we are. I think the posture we're called to take is actually a posture of humility. Like humble awe for the wonderful responsibility that God has given us over his good creation. And that's really where the psalmist goes. You guys know this psalm, this is Psalm 8. When I consider your heavens, the moon, uh, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you've set in place, what is mankind that you're mindful of them, human beings that, you're, that you care for? Like, God, you're a creator of all things, and yet you, you see us and you care for us. Not even that, you made them rulers over the works of your hands. You put everything under our feet, all flocks and herds and the animals of the wild, the birds in the sky and the fish in the sea, all that swim the paths of the sea, right? The psalmist's response is, gosh, this is a glorious place you put us in, and I am humbled that you see me. Not only that, you've put me in charge of all of this. What an amazing, wonderful privilege. I, be- I think that's the biblical gut response to our role as rulers over this place, okay? All right, so let me just take you a little bit farther down the, the story. There's so many things I have written here that I'm not gonna share today. Um, we need to talk about the fall for a moment, I think. Um, I've given you a creation account of things, but let's just acknowledge what happens at the fall. Sin enters the, the, the world through God's image bears. They eat of the fruit. And this is the consequence that God uh, puts particularly on the man. To the man he said, cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil, you will eat food from it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow, you will eat your food until you return to the ground. Since from it you were taken, for dust you are, and to dust you shall return. I've always found it really interesting that God, in some ways, reshapes his creation to match our spiritual state. And I've always thought, it doesn't feel very fair to the rest of creation. Why does creation have to suffer for human beings' sin? But it's like, as, as, as creation's representatives, it's kind of like, as the leader goes, so, so the rest of creation goes. And so this doesn't take away the inherent goodness of God's creation. It doesn't take away our, our role as rulers. It just says, now that role is going to be a lot more complicated. It's, going to be, it's not going to be as life-giving as what's. It's going to involve painful toil. The earth will fight against you in ways it, it wasn't designed to. Uh, and you probably won't care for it in ways that you were designed to. 
So it, it, it brings complexity and pain and toil in this fundamental role we have of subduing the earth. Paul in Romans 8 says it this way, the creation was subjected to, and he uses a word that gets translated two different ways. One is frustration, another is futility. This creation, not just us, but creation has been subjected to futility and bondage to decay, right? And I have all sorts of questions about like, how much about this current world can we chalk, like the physical world, can we chalk up to the fall? And how much can we not? Like, I think most Christians just kind of chalk everything bad about, that they don't like about creation up to the fall. Like, why scorpions? The fall. You know, why poison ivy? The fall. Um, why earthquakes? The fall. And I actually don't know, I don't think we have a lot of data on what a non-fall creation looked like. Really, all that it's, in Genesis, it's specifically the ground. Um, but here it seems to be more than that. Decay, futility. Um, but all that to say, that doesn't negate the goodness and grandeur of this world, clearly. It doesn't negate the role we are to play. It just says this role has become much more complicated. It's painful. We're going to mess it up. <laughs> and it's going gonna, it's gonna to be hard for us. Okay? So, um, okay, I'm going to share two more stories. Making decisions on the fly here. Um, do you know, I'm passing this, do you know they discovered the ark uh, in the 19th century? There's the original ark, Noah's ark right there. If you didn't know that, um, I could show you that later, JK. Um, so <laughs> the story of the flood and Noah, is, I'm passing it, it's fascinating to look at through these lenses about God equipping Noah as the first conservationist. It's really interesting actually, and God being willing to wipe out every creature and every human from the earth. Like the complexity of that story, I'm gonna to skip today. It's really fascinating. But what I wanna do is I wanna go, okay, so we know the creation intent, but now we're in this fallen, broken world. So what does it look like, what does redemption look like in this conversation about creation? And I'm just gonna, I wanna share real quickly the story of Israel uh, through this lens. Um, and what I wanna acknowledge is beginning in Genesis 12, really the, the story of the rest of creation really drops back to the background. And almost the rest of scripture is focused in on human salvation, beginning with God's choice of Abraham and a people ultimately culminating in Jesus Christ. And so nature, creation, those, the, the original creation intent really, again, it, it, it withdraws. It's not on the center stage. It withdraws to the background. It is not gone, I want to suggest, but it, it is precisely that. It is a background. The central story is about human redemption, um, clearly. But I, I thought about... Um, what about when God chooses a people for himself? And I thought, what would it look like just to look at Israel's experience through this lens of the backdrop of the earth? And when I, when I put that lens on, I thought, oh, that's really interesting. The story of Israel is not just a story of a people. It's a story, specifically a story of a people and a land. Right? The whole story is about God giving a land to a people and I think what we see is, is that Israel and, and the promised land were intended to be this, this, it's kind of a little microcosm of what God had designed the whole world to be. And what one day, I think, when Christ returns, God will do. It's, it's a little mini experiment in a particular place at a particular time. Um, and again, the land is pretty central, though it's not the most central thing. But I, I was thinking about some of the themes, how they are echoed in Israel's story. So let me just give you a couple. And then we'll move towards the end. 
Um, okay, first off, it, the promised land really is presented as like an Eden for them. Um, it's a good land flowing with milk and honey, right? That's the phrase we often hear, a land with milk and honey. A land where you can dig copper out of the hills. It's got all the resources that human beings need to create a flourishing civilization and society. They are literally called to subdue the land before the Lord. That's the Genesis 1 word. Now, in their case, what that means is to actually conquer the enemies of the land um, and to defeat the Canaanites and all the other ites, essentially, uh, and you know, send them out of the land. But they're called to subdue this good land before the Lord, just as, as uh, Adam and Eve were, or as, as men and women were. Um, the land belongs to God, not them. The land must not be sold permanently because the land is mine and you are but aliens and my tenants. Um, just as the earth is the Lord's, so always God said, I want to give you a land of your own, but I want to remind you, this is my land. You are merely tenants. Now, um, God is very pro-private property in the Old Testament. You can have your own private property as long as you always remember, well, technically it's God's, right? But I can still own private property, but I'm, it's, it's leased land, essentially. You know? All land is leased land, but within that, there's, there's private property. But all these themes. And then what really hit me, and I'm like, duh, I hadn't thought of it through this lens. Israel's faithfulness to God is literally tied up with the land's fruitfulness. Right? The whole story, like, if you guys obey me, I will bring rain. I will water your crops. Your grass will grow. Uh, your vines, your, 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 your wine will overflow. Your cattle will produce. Your young will produce, right? Um, you obey me, and I will bless the land. Okay? If you disobey me, I will curse the land. I will bring drought and disease, and the land will be turned into dust and powder. Your faithfulness to me is tied up with the fruitfulness of the land, okay? And then one more thing to say, he gives them all of these laws, right? Mainly to promote justice in, in the land, but also to care for the land. And so he gives them a Sabbath every week. And that is, he, as he describes it in both the Sabbath commands, not just a rest for the people, but it is also a rest for who? The cattle, right? So that your cattle, your livestock may rest. He gives them a Sabbath year every seven years where the land rests. It lays fallow. We're not going to keep reaping and harvesting this year. I'll, I'll give you enough in the six years, but the land needs to rest. And of course, a jubilee year every 50 years where the land rests, where property returns to its ancestral owners, okay? So again, this is not... In the, in the foreground of Israel's story, I would call it, it's, it's a background thing. But we're seeing, I think, God's sort of intention for humanity playing out in small scale for Israel. All right? So um, let me just conclude with where this story ends. Um, again, Jesus comes on the scene, New Testament. The New Testament is all about the coming of Jesus and, and the salvation of human beings through Jesus Christ. And the early communities are not talking about creation care. They're talking about what does it mean to live out this life uh, with Jesus and the Spirit and Jew and Gentile coming together and all of that. So this entirely fades into the background, which is why a lot of Christians don't, it, we're not going to open Romans and see a lot of passages on it. But when we look at where is this story headed, where does this story go 
at the end, it comes back to where it started in the beginning. And so we could look at Romans 8, we could look at 2 Peter 2, which we don't have time for, but let me just remind you of how the story ends in Revelation 21. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband, and skipping to the next chapter. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, as clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb down the middle of the great street of the city. On each side of the river stood the tree of life. There it is, right? That was in the garden. Uh, Bearing 12 crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month, and the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. I love that phrase. I feel that especially as we're looking at what's happening in the world right now. The leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be any curse, right? The creation is liberated from the curse. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city, and his servants will serve him, and they will reign, rule. There's that word again, forever and ever. And so notice how this story ends. This new heavens and new earth, lots of conversation. Are we talking about a replacement, full destruction replacement, a renewal of the old? Lots of debate about all that but a a radically new, transformed, whatever word you want to use, heavens and earth, but a very tangible existence. And many scholars call it, it it is neither a garden nor just a city, it is a garden city, right? It has elements of Eden. Um, But we're not going back to Eden. That's not the plan. That was never the plan. The plan God was take Eden and build a human society out of it. Build this, this, this city of where human beings flourish, where the land flourishes, where Eden, the blessings of Eden still are there, but where human beings rule. This was always our, our job. It, it continues to be our job. It will be our job for eternity, and one day we will rule in the physical presence of our King Jesus, which will make everything better. And this is a new heavens and a new earth that no amount of conservation can bring about. This is a divine act of God that only he can bring about in his time. And so we pray, your kingdom come, right? Come, Lord Jesus. Bring your kingdom. Bring your new heavens and new earth. But in the meantime, we get to bear witness to God's kingdom through our acts in this world until he comes again. Okay, I have scratched the very surface of this conversation in Scripture Um, I have tried to, as much as I can, remove my own political lens and just try to have a basic biblical theology of what I would call creation care. (laughs) That we ought to care about it and we ought to care for it, but in its proper perspective, okay? So uh, let me leave you with a a quick, so what? What do I do this, Dave? Uh, Some of us have thought, some of you have thought about this issue way more than I have. Some of you have never thought about this issue. Um, Let me leave you with three really quick words. They all begin with the letter E. And whenever I start using alliteration, you should be very nervous. So I apologize. Um, How then shall we live? What do do I do with this? Um, I was thinking for myself. Here's three ways I think it would be worth continuing to engage this conversation. One is this. Let's enjoy God's creation. And many of you do this so well. But gosh darn it. (laughs) It is wonderful. It's God's. He made it. We're made for it. 
Go out and enjoy it. Go down to the beach. If you like the mountains, be in the mountains. Get off of your devices more often. Take a walk. Get in your backyard, your front porch. Um, plant something. Plant one thing and grow it. You know? Uh, become a fisherman or a fisherwoman. Become a hunter. And people say, wait, wait, I thought you just said care for the animals. Uh, my dad's a hunter. I grew up watching him. I'm, I think that's a great way to appreciate creation. Um, as long as you eat what you kill, you know? But that deer had a way better life than the, the burger I'm eating, the, you know, the cow in the factory. Like, that's a great way to enjoy God's creation and experience it. There's so many ways to simply that we all can enjoy it. And I think there's something lost when we don't. So that's something all of us can do. Second, maybe you're like, you know, I wanna educate myself on this issue. They've just kind of scratched the surface. Um, but I think I wanna, I wanna look into this issue a little bit. It's obviously hugely controversial and politicized, um, but you might go, I wanna learn about this. Um, I think it's safe to say there's, there's a general scientific consensus. I think this is, a, this is not a controversial statement uh, that says the world is heating up and human beings have a part to play in that. Um, we can choose to disagree with the scientific consensus, and sometimes as Christians we do, and sometimes that's appropriate. Um, I think that's a safe statement to say. Um, but you might be like, I want to learn more about that. I, I don't know what I think about that. And so I'm going to look into these things, and you're going to find out there's so many values and tension. When you actually start figuring out what would we do differently, it gets real complicated real fast. Like electric versus gas, that's more complicated than it looks at first, right? Um, and you'll learn that... Um, it's just, there's just values and tension. You've got the economy, you've got human need, you've got God's earth, and how do you hold these things together? Um, you'll learn that issues of creation care tap into issues of justice for human beings because the reality is not all human beings experience the effects of climate change equally or of our impact on the earth equally. Like Rich people don't experience those impacts the way that poor people do. And all we have to think about is like, where does all of our waste go? And none of us really knows, but somebody takes the hit for that. It's usually someone that doesn't have as much as we do, right? So there's issues of justice and of, of care that are all overlapping. So I don't have answers, which is why I didn't try to give you answers. But you might say, I want to educate myself on this. I want to be a little bit better informed on this. And then finally, um, maybe you want to engage. And you're like, I love God's creation. I, I don't want to unnecessarily mess it up. I want to honor this role of being God's steward. And my encouragement would be, Find some small ways to engage. Don't start posting on social media. You know, don't change your political and start talking about this stuff. Like, make concrete little daily decisions that you think, I think this would be a faithful thing to do. And I will say, I think we all consume a lot of everything. Um, and we, we probably don't need to consume. And I get that it packs the, the economy. I get there's values and tension. Um, but maybe there's like one thing you want to focus on. I want to focus on what I eat. I want to focus on um, how much energy I use in my house. I want to focus on, you name it, like little things um, that we can do. We don't have to make a big deal about it. We don't have to get all self-righteous about it. We can say, I'm going to try to be, to be faithful in this. What, what I will say, I'll end with this, speak personally. So much of what drives my decisions for like what I buy, what I eat, energy, are the values of convenience and comfort and ease. That drives so much of what I do. And I'll just say, I can't think of anywhere in Scripture where those are really good biblical values. <laughs> Whatever you're talking about, you're talking about marriage, you're talking about health, you're talking about relationships, 
Those aren't ever like on the side of scripture. What's on the side of scripture is love, humility, sacrifice, right? Thinking of one another. Um, and so what would it look like in this conversation to pursue biblical values? And we don't have to make a big deal out of it, you know? Just humbly, quietly, faithfully trying to fulfill God's role for our lives. I wanna see how long I went, I'm curious. Two, five, four, six, that's, oh gosh, 53 minutes, I'm so sorry. Let us pray. <laughs> well, Lord, I, I think today what I wanna say with these wonderful people who, whom I love, thank you. Thank you for um, making such a beautiful place. And uh, we know that the fall has impacted everything, and yet we can still see glimpses of the original glory uh, that you intended for, for this creation. And uh, it's such a gift, and in particular here in, in Orange County where we have <laughs> the best weather in the world and, and beauty all around us and all the conveniences of, of modern technology. That, that is a, just a rich, rich blessing. And so um, we thank you. Um, and we thank you for the role that you've given us. What, what a privilege, what a responsibility, what an honor that we have been put in charge of all of this. And so I pray that you help us to think about our lives in ways that would honor you. And in simple, small ways, to fulfill the role that you've given us, to subdue, to rule, to steward, to care, to enjoy, not for our glory, but for your glory. And we trust that as we do that, um, there is a way forward that involves human flourishing and involves uh, the care of your good creation until you return. And, we, and, and also keep, us, um, keep this in the right place in our values. Let's not make it, help us not to make it a bigger deal and not a less deal, but help us to hold it where you would want us to hold it. Um, so, but we just give you thanks, and we honor you as our creator. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.